to the Wild Wisdom Podcast with Dr. Patricia Mills. I'm Dr. Patricia. This podcast is for people who want to transform their health, restore their hormones, and reconnect to their body's natural wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia. I'm a Canadian medical doctor, published author, internationally recognized researcher, and passionate advocate for your health. Here, we'll explore the intersection between ancient wisdom and cutting-edge science, distilling the essence of true health into practical steps you can take. Wild wisdom is instinctive knowledge in action. Thanks for making this part of your day. Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is Dr. Patricia Mills. Dr. Patricia, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mm. You're very welcome. Uh, Patricia, I'm really looking forward to uh, our conversation, getting into your backstory. But before we get to that point, um, I've got a few questions I'd like to ask you just to kind of get the conversation uh, rolling, so to speak. So I would like to know, how do you start your day? Uh, Do you have any specific routine or ritual that you like to stick to on most mornings and on most days? Yeah, that's a great starting point. Um, On most mornings and days, and keep in mind, I have two young kids age five and seven years old. Uh, I've learned, however, that it's even more important to have a uh, morning ritual and routine because of that. And what I do is I uh, I used to have to set the alarm for around 5.45 in the morning. Now I seem to kind of gradually awaken at that time, just the habit of it. And I usually uh, have a couple of things I choose from. I uh, get up and I go to the washroom. I do some oil pulling in my mouth, swish and spit with some sesame seed oil, clean it with a tongue scraper afterwards, get my mouth feeling really squeaky clean. At that point, either do a sauna. So I have an infrared sauna. I'm very fortunate. Now I have an infrared sauna in my home and I'll put on some sesame seed oil uh, on my skin or on my hair. I'll jump in the sauna, you know, have a really nice shower afterwards, cold shower to get that, you know, cold heat uh, exposure. And we can talk about that later if you want, but it makes me feel amazing. And it's really helped with my uh, metabolism and overall health. And uh, if I don't do that, um, I'll, and in the sauna, I do stretching. So I do um, various different positions I learned from Qigong and yoga, like asanas, different poses. Uh, or if I'm not doing the sauna, I'll be doing that uh, downstairs in, like, in, my, uh, in a separate room and I'll do my stretching. I always start off with my stretching and I kind of use that time to meditate. So I do meditation stretching. And then uh, if I haven't done the sauna, I'll choose what kind of exercise I want to do that day. So if I'm menstruating, I I tend to go with really gentle things like Qigong, maybe some Hatha yoga. If I'm not, and I'm more in my ovulatory phase, then I'll do more powerful things like uh, body strength workouts with weights to build that muscle and keep my bones strong. I might bounce on the rebounder for some detoxification cardiovascular. And what I always do after that, even after the sauna, is I'll go for a walk. So I'll go outside, even if it's two minutes, uh, I usually try to make it so that I have at least half an hour. And I go outside and I purposefully do that without sunglasses to get some really great sunlight in my eyes for that hormone reset for the day. Um, And even that's even if it's rainy or snowy, I live in Smithers, so it can get like really snowy here and I'll still go outside. And that just sets me up for the day. By the time I'm done all of that, it's around 8 a.m. 
Um, and then I get started with, you know, uh, with my kids. I'm lucky my husband, uh, he does like the morning routine with the kids. And then I pick them up and do the afternoon routine. Uh, we help out each other with each routine, but we're, you know, there's the primary responsible. So I basically uh, design my life so that I can have a really kick-ass morning routine because I didn't use to protect that time and prioritize uh, myself and my health in that way. Um, and so this started around when I turned 40. I just made this conscious decision that I was going to really uh, make a change. And if I put it all in in the morning, then the rest is gravy. I don't have to worry about it for the rest of the day. Okay. Now I'm very curious, uh, Dr. Patricia, uh, what was it at uh, the age 40 that was the catalyst uh, for you to kind of begin to take control of your morning, so to speak? Many things started happening in my mid to late 30s, uh, personal and within my family. So personally, I was noticing that I was having a really hard time with my health in terms of like my skin. I was starting to get bad dermatitis around the eyes, requiring, you know, prescription medication. Um, I was getting weight uh, issues with my weight after having children, and I just couldn't seem to shake it, even though before that, I was so good at um, controlling my weight with diet and exercise. After that, I just couldn't seem to get on top of it. After, in retrospect, it was more hormonal and gut health related issues than the stress response. Um, and then what happened also, which contributed to my health issues is that my dad was diagnosed with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And um, that diagnosis was, uh, because I'm a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation as a medical doctor trained in Canada, um, and I would diagnose and, re and treat people with neurological conditions. When, I, when he got diagnosed, I immediately knew everything that he was going to go through until the date of his death, which was going to probably be within five years time, just given the, you know, how that disease usually progresses. And he was 58 years old at the time. And it was so devastating to me. So it, and he was someone who was like an iron man. He was, you know, doing everything that Western medicine was telling him to do. Right. And including like, Anyways, we can do that in a in a different section if you want, but it, it just made me question why. So I helped him with all the Western medicine things we could do. And as a physical medicine rehab specialist, there was so much I could do for equipment and communication devices, sitting comfort, mobility, pain control, spasm control when it came and went. Um, however, behind like you know, as I was helping him with those things, in the back of my mind, it was like, why? is this man uh, who had no family history of this condition get this condition, right? And so I'm also a published researcher. I have over 25 publications under my belt. I know how to read and evaluate scientific studies extremely well. As a result, that was my bread and butter, was doing the systematic reviews of research. So I would go over 5,000 papers sometimes for one for one publication. And so I just quickly started diving into the research to kind of get a sense of like, why is he not doing well? Why am I not doing well? Why are my patients not doing well? I don't know why it took my dad's diagnosis for me to start then looking at my patients with different eyes and being like, okay, like you have diabetes. Why? You got a stroke. Why? You had a heart attack. Why? You got multiple sclerosis. You know, I just started to ask that question. And as I dove into the research more and more, I came across the field of functional medicine, which is root cause medicine. And it made me realize that there was a whole other world out there that was 
in the research, actually, like things that other people had studied very rigorously, more rigorously in some cases than what I had been taught. Like, uh, for example, I was using a medication called baclofen to treat spasms in patients. And there were maybe like three studies, teeny tiny studies used to support it, the use of it. But it was first line medication at that time for spasms. And the side effects were so bad that 50% of people discontinue it. And yet that's what we were using for lack of anything better, right? And through the best of intentions. Um, and then I was coming across all of this other research, like with large trials, very well done on um, things that we were not taught on in medical school, like why these disease ha diseases happen and what we can do to fix them. And I'm, I'm not someone who is like a conspiracy theorist. I don't think it's done purposely. I think it's a systematic error in the way that we are trained and the information that we're exposed to that just propagates this way of practicing. And it's not that our healthcare system is necessarily broken. It's that it's missing some very important pieces. Um, the pieces that are there can be helpful, right? But when I started to learn this information, I started to apply it to my own life. And as I applied it to myself, I noticed that my health was just getting better and better and better. And now it's culminated, like my morning routine is a reflection of the accumulated knowledge that I've gained over the years looking into health promotion, right? Like the, the support, like the support of good health. And that's not even getting into nutrition. That's just daily habits that support good health. Awesome. Okay. Will you talk to me a little bit about the, the oil pulling? Uh, I'm, I've heard about it, but I couldn't tell you necessarily, you know, what it's for, what it's doing. Could you kind of break that down uh, as simple as possible uh, for us, please? Yeah. So oil pulling is an Ayurvedic uh, tradition. It's from Ayurvedic medicine. And there has been research done to show that it does decrease bacterial load in the mouth and it decreases the kind of bacteria that causes cavities. And what you're doing basically is you're using the principle of um, like like attracts like. So oil and bacteria, like, you know, they have like um, their cell membranes that have oil in their outer outer membrane, just like every single cell in our body. It's primarily made of oil. And so when you take uh, oil and you put it in your mouth and you swish it, the bacteria and everything gets pulled into the oil and then you spit it out. So that's really what it's about. And, you know, there's different research on like different kinds of oils. It doesn't seem to matter so much. Sesame seed oil and coconut oil are the ones that are most traditionally used. And um, I believe coconut oil was the one that was primarily studied in research. And this research comes out of universities in places like India. Hmm. Okay, very well. Love it. Okay, uh, next question here, uh, Dr. Patricia. Uh, do you have a favorite book or a book that you like to gift often? And then if you consume podcasts, you have a favorite podcast that you, you uh, wouldn't mind recommending. So first of all, favorite book or book that you like to gift uh, often? Uh, it depends on the person. Like I have, uh, if someone's just getting into nutrition, I love the book Deep Nutrition. Um, and I, I'm blanking on the name of the author, but it's like a really great introduction to nutrition. If someone has a nutrition dialed, but if there's a psychological aspect to it, or they have both kind of missing, the Nourishing uh, Wisdom by uh, Mark da Davis, I believe it is. Again, don't quote me on the on the authors. I'm not good for remembering author names. 
Um, so those are like the two books that I really start off with, with people, who, especially from the nutritional aspect. Perfect. Uh, do you, uh, do you listen to podcasts? If so, do you have kind of a favorite or go-to one? I've, I've gone through different evolutions <laughs> over the years, uh, but I keep coming back to, um, I really like obviously, uh, well, maybe not obviously for some people, but in the functional medicine realm, Dr. Mark Hyman and his pharmacy podcast is really great. Um, I also like his, um, the Drew Bro Proit podcast. They've got some really great guests that come on. Um, and talk about different topics. Um, there's also one by Paleo Valley and Huberman Labs. Those are kind of the ones that I tend to go to and and Max Lugavere, the Genius Podcast. Some very good podcasts there for sure. Okay, over the last year or within recent times, what's a life lesson you've been taught or uh, that you've learned? I would say that you know, when I first started diving into health, I was focusing on nutrition and I already knew about exercise as a physical medicine and rehab specialist. So nutrition was a new one. However, over the last year or so, what has become even more evident to me is the mind-body connection and how our thoughts and our mental state uh, and our connection within and without to others around us, to nature, how that deeply influences our physiology. And that you could have the perfect diet for your unique body type. You could have the best exercise routine, the best morning routine. But if you're finding yourself throughout the day with thoughts that are, you know, negative in nature or, or self-critical or judgmental of others, it's going to pull down your physio physiological functions and affect your health negatively. So um, that has been really the big focus for me over the last year. And, and so uh, is there kind of like a, uh, a practice that you've implemented, just kind of like your morning routine? Is there a, 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 like a, a cognitive or mental practice that you've implemented in your life to kind of like keep your mind or your mindset where you want it to be? If so, could you maybe touch on that, please? Yeah, there's a couple of things. And as by way of background, there's this book called Living Untethered by Michael Singer, which I think is a really great um, resource for people who want to dive into this a little bit deeper. And of course, like, you know, the power of now and that kind of thing. But for me, it's been introducing um, meditative like practices in my day. So I used to sit down and meditate and I find that if I do that, it I, like with my busy life, like uh, schedule and kids, it's really hard to fit that in addition to everything else I want to do. So what I do is I try to make my entire morning routine a practice of meditation in that I'm either focusing on what I'm doing. So I'm either um, focusing on the stretch, focusing on the movement, focusing on putting the oil on my skin, right? Just getting really like uh, the focus of what is happening now and allowing my thoughts to come and go and not letting myself get caught up in my thoughts during those moments. If I find myself um, in a situation where I'm like, for example, stretching, I start to do what would be probably similar to transcendental meditation and that I'm repeating a mantra like I am or one over and over again so that if my mind wanders, I go back to the mantra. Mantras are like mind anchors. And the, the entire purpose of that, including when I eat, like if I'm with my kids, obviously that's not possible, but if I'm eating alone, I do everything I can to make it a meditation practice and that I'm focusing 
on looking at the food and, you know, being grateful for the food, the texture, the taste, the chewing, you know, all of that, the feeling of fullness in my stomach, rather than having my mind wander, because my tendency without these practices, and even with these practices, my, my tendency is for my mind to just wander. And as a medical doctor who's involved in online, um, you know, trying to make an impact for people uh, with respect to their health, it's very easy for your mind to get lost in like details about the business, my to-do list, what I need to do for my kids, what I need to do for myself. And the mind just starts going through this whole litany or reliving the past, thinking about previous conversations, like judging them or wishing they had been different, that kind of stuff, which is you know, you know, if you live in the past, it's anxiety. Uh, you know, if you're, uh, you know, live in the past, it could be depression in the future. It's anxiety. So just trying to stay in the now. Mm -hmm. And I find that the more I bring that practice in uh, consciously, it's more likely to be my default in other moments in my life. So with my children, right? So it used to be that when I was with my children, I would just be, again, like those thoughts would be running through my head. So I wasn't completely present with them. And now when I'm with them, it's more likely than not, I'm totally present in the moment, focusing on what's going on, appreciative of what's going on. And it's made something as simple as parenting this extremely enjoyable experience compared to what it used to be like before I started um, this practice. And I noticed that what that does is it decreases my stress response. So I have these four pillars for whole body health that I focus on. And one pillar is the stress response and anything you can do to calm down your, your nervous system so that it's calm. And, you know, when you're calm, you can rest and digest, you know, your body can rejuvenate. Um, that's when your body like cleans out the trash, gets rid of cancer cells, all those things. So um, and in, with a person like myself, who's living a really busy lifestyle, you can't just check out of life and go sit on a, in a hammock and hang out for, you know, hours at a time. You have to find a way to, um, you know, influence the stress response so that you lower it in your regular day-to-day -day activities. All right. Awesome. And that's kind of a great segue into the last, uh, kind of conversational starter question. You mentioned, uh, the mantra. Uh, so the final question here before we get into your backstory a little bit more is, do you have a favorite quote, mantra, or word? Right now, uh, my favorite mantra is, I am. And partly it's because when I say it, it brings a, a peacefulness to my mind. It's the stillness. Um, it, it allows me to just come into my body and just be in the moment. And if I were to start contemplating it on a more like higher level, it makes me grateful for the fact that I, I simply am alive and I'm here on this planet experiencing this amazing beauty that's around us, you know, good or bad. It's, it's the privilege of being alive, you know? Um, so that's why I, I think I'm really attuned to that mantra right now. Beautiful. All right, Dr. Patricia, we're going to transition into uh, your childhood and your upbringing at this point. Um, this is kind of a fun part of the conversation because we get to kind of find out a little bit more about um, how things started off for you. So if you don't mind uh, telling all of us kind of like where you physically grew up, um, kind of paint the picture of your childhood for us. Um, were you into academics? Were you into sports? Are you an only child? What was your relationship with uh, your, your, your parents? Kind of just uh, give, us, give us that snapshot, um, any pivotal 
pivotal uh, moments maybe from your childhood up to about high school, and then we'll uh, transition from there. Oh, sure. This will be fun. Um, so I was born in Brazil. I'm Brazilian by ancestry. Like all my family lives in Brazil, except for my immediate family now. And we immigrated from Brazil uh, when I was younger. Originally, it was because my dad was doing his master's and PhD in, in engineering with the University of Alberta in Canada. So the universities had this um, agreement. So we went back and forth between Brazil and Canada every two to four years until I was 11 years old, which led to a very interesting um, upbringing in the sense that I got to experience two different cultures um, and two different, um, you know, one in Brazil, it was like surrounded by family full of color, going to the beach, you know, tropical, all that stuff. Um, but I lived in and I lived in Sao Paulo, which is, the, you know, the biggest city in Brazil is very busy metropolitan. And then going to Edmonton, uh, which is very quiet, relatively speaking, very flat, not a lot of um, color variation in terms of its, you know, nature. So for me, it was like a distinct difference and also no family. Um, and I, and for a while, like not many friends, although we did eventually make some great friends there. But I remember as a child, it was so hard to experience those moves. And my parents were young at the time. They didn't know how to have conversations with us about change and how to cope. So I learned how to like shove it all inside. So, you know, to my even to and I disconnected my brain from my body because it was so uncomfortable in my body to be changing schools all the time, making new friends, being the new kid in the class, in the lunchroom with no one to talk to or eat with, um, that I just couldn't like deal with it anymore physically. So I just disconnected my brain from my body and so that I wouldn't feel it anymore. So that was like, I think why, you know, I had a lot of health issues as well. However, it made me an extremely strong and resilient person. And I became really good at making friends um, pretty easily. When I did eventually find myself in a, in university, which was the first place I went to for more than two years in a row for schooling, I was just so grateful to have like finally to build a strong community, um, friends that I'm still in touch with and and will hang out with uh, to this day. So there were pros and cons to that, of course. Um, and then we grew, you know, growing up in Edmonton, moving to then to Ontario uh, for high school. Um, I ended up being. Uh, you know, things happened in my life that drove me strongly towards uh, academics. I was very sports oriented and I had a left knee injury and I've always liked to excel like for my own, you know, I always like to do my best and kind of compete with myself. So I would, I, and in Brazil, you start st doing homework, like dedicated homework time when you're in grade one. <laughs> so I come home from school and be like, you got to sit down at your desk and do your homework, like grade one. So I just had this very natural ability to just sit my butt down for long periods of time and study. So I ended up excelling academically when I put my mind to it. Um, and that got me into, you know, I won various like the Governor Bronze General Award, uh, you know, for highest grade in my um, high school. And I honestly didn't even know I was on track for that. Like, I really just didn't pay attention to that. I just like to do my best. Um, and that got me into university um, at Queen's University for life sciences. Any uh, any siblings or were you an only child or are an only child? I have two younger sisters um, and we are, you know, between a year and a half and six years apart. Cool. Um, so I, I, uh, talk to me a little bit about your parents because obviously you just mentioned your dad like pursuing his master's and PhD. And then I think you said something about him being like in into like Ironman races, which is triathlon so 
Uh, I'm assuming that uh, your parents had a very strong influence on you academically and, and sport wise. Can you talk, talk about your relationship with them when you're younger, please? Yeah. So, um, I mean, my parents are immigrant success stories because, you know, my mom even delayed her, um, her, her undergraduate degree because of coming to Canada. So she had to, she took a few years off from her schooling while supporting my dad while he was doing his schooling. And my dad is also someone who just loved to excel and do extremely well. And he would, you know, be gone for extended periods of time doing his uh, studying. But when he was with us, he was very playful. Um, we had a really great time. And even my mom, like, even though she was off, she would just do always be learning a new skill, be like sewing or baking, or she would make our clothes and make our birthday cakes. It was pretty cool and inspiring to see. So I was always surrounded by, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can achieve it kind of attitude. And what I love um, about them is they always made me feel like I was very special and smart. So they were always telling me like how intelligent I was and always praising me. And I think, um, you know, people are, there's a lot of like controversy around how we should, you know, raise our children. But I, I felt like knowing that and hearing that was extremely helpful to me because I had a lot of confidence in myself as a result. Um, and, you know, my mom went from not working to eventually becoming vice president at Royal Bank for her, like, and she built up a division from scratch that was extremely, um, you know, very, very successful for private accounting international. Um, so, you know, just witnessing her rise and just, she just like put her nose down to, to the grindstone and just did the work. Mm -hmm. And my dad ended up being a partner in an engineering firm, very successful. Uh, one of the top two engineers in Ontario for his area of expertise. Um, you know, just, I can even list so many things that he did, but and then again, uh, excelling outside of work, right? And he loved to um, hang out with his friends in bicycling groups and running groups and swimming groups. He got into doing the Ironman, which is just like an extreme test of endurance and psychological perseverance. And um, yeah, it was just a very high achieving family. And, uh, and it never occurred to me um, that I would you know, not succeed at anything that I wanted to do as a result of witnessing um, what they accomplished. Mm. Do you, do you, um, now, with the high achieving uh, family, uh, Dr. Uh, Patricia, did, did that ever uh, become a burden for you? Or did you not ever uh, really feel that? Because sometimes when there's high expectations and high achievement, um, that can be great. But there's also, it can be a two-edged sword in the terms of Sometimes that can create anxiety, that can create pressure. Did you ever feel that or experience that or not when you were younger? You know, so interesting. The only time I ever experienced it was just a couple of years ago. Um, so I already had uh, become, I had already done my, gotten to medical school, which is, as you know, extremely challenging in, in uh, Canada anyways, very, very competitive. I never felt pressure. I just was curious, could I get in? <laughs> um, and because I had some backup ideas and I didn't really know if I wanted to be a doctor or not, to be honest. I was like, oh, how, like, why don't I give this a go? You know, so I did that, got in. Um, really enjoyed the learning, like learning things, learning about the body, just, you know, again, excelling. I love that. Got into my residency program in what I wanted to do. Never felt external pressure. It was always like, what can I achieve? What, you know, what do I want to do? And then I was, you know, practicing as staff at the University of British Columbia on the inpatient ward for spinal cord injury. Um, I was internationally recognized in my field for research. I was head of the division of research for uh, the residents there, like just completely achieving in everything. 
And the time when I felt external pressure, the only time was, and this is really minor, but it's just interesting because when, as I evolved through my learning in terms of um, health and wellness, and I started to experience uh, like cognitive uh, dissonance around what I was practicing and what I was learning, like, you know, it didn't feel right for me to prescribe medications in certain conditions anymore, but that would be the standard of care. And over time, I, I did my functional medicine certification, and I was really supported by my by my family in that choice. And there came a time when I was when I thought to, I was so burnt out um, mm. from you know I actually left my position um, on the spinal cord injury ward as a doctor there, even though I loved it because I just reached total burnout. And it took me a to, uh, like a couple of years to recover from that. Mm. And during that time. There was a part of me that didn't want to go back to medical practice at all. So I took a clinical sabbatical to do my functional medicine certification, um, which is an additional, you know, two and a half years of like, you know, training that you have to do not full time, but part time. And you have to do these certain modules and exams and stuff. And during that time, I was doing it just because my whole life I had always just kept like my dad always taught me, keep your doors open, like don't close any doors, keep them open so you have more choices. So I was doing it to keep my doors open, but I was doing that training thinking I'm never going to actually practice as a functional medicine doctor. Like, I don't want to go back into that. It's so to have the responsibility of a human directly in my hands, was just it used to be something I could do before burnout. I could just do it. It, it. I didn't even think about it. I didn't take it home with me at night, like nothing. I just did it during the day and went home. That's it. But after burnout, it's like your your reserve and capacity for resiliency for any kind of stress just like disappears, right? And I was like, I, I don't think I can do this. And when I would talk to my mom about it, she was like, no, but you have to. You have to be a functional medicine doctor. Like you have to help people. They need this help. You know, they have, you have to be of service in this way. And there was a part of me that just so strongly rebelled against it. And it took another couple of years for me to recover from burnout and find my way to a new way of practicing that balance that would prevent me from going into burnout again. And at the same time, would provide people with the kind of care that actually would result in changes in their life. And I feel like I've reached that point now. And I, I'm about to start a, a functional medicine practice in the fall, uh, in a couple months. And I'm, I'm actually like excited about it and looking forward to it. And so I've come out on the other side of that. Um, and yeah, so that was like the one time where I was like, oh God, I can't, yeah, yeah, I just can't do this. You know, I can't meet your expectations anymore. And uh, yeah, that was a tough one actually. Okay. Makes sense for sure. All right. So one other thing I want to touch on from your childhood that you mentioned, and then we'll kind of transition to uh, post high school and ac academics from there. But you said uh, from all the uh, moving and, and being the new uh, person in the school and things of, of that regard, you kind of at some point disconnected your brain from your body. Can you uh, talk a little bit more in depth about that? What did that kind of look like, feel like for you when you were uh, a younger girl, Dr. Uh, Patricia? So when I think back to... Um... A good example is when we would move from Brazil to Canada and we'd arrive in like our new home that we would be living in and it was totally different, didn't look recognizable, didn't have any friends, didn't know anybody. And the smells were different. It just smelt different. Like, And I remember feeling in my body this deep discomfort, like my stomach would tighten. I got like butterflies in my stomach. My chest felt tight, felt tight. My neck felt tight. 
I, I just, I felt like kind of screaming, but I couldn't scream, right? Because that would not be like, that's frowned upon anyway, in any aspect of civilization, just screaming. Um, and so I, I didn't know how to put it out there. I didn't know how to move through that. I didn't know how to process those feelings. It wasn't even an emotion. It was like a physical sensation in my body in reaction to all of this novelty and sudden change and loss of um, friends and family. And so um, while my body continued to experience those sensations, I made this, you know, in retrospect, I can, I can describe it, but at the time it was this sort of subconscious conscious decision to, I just can't keep experiencing this and I don't know what to do with it. So I'm just going to ignore it. (laughs) And so I got really good at ignoring my body's physical cues to the point where I developed like constipation. I've had lifelong issues with constipation since the age of six. And I think it's because various issues, including gut health. However, I think it's that stress response where I just like internalized everything. I pushed it down inside. And then that I'm assuming uh, starting to kind of push down those feelings at a, at such a young age, that's kind of what led you probably at some point uh, what you were describing earlier as uh, uh, burnout. I mean, because you just kind of like work hard, work hard, work hard, push down, push down, push down. At some point you are going to burn yourself out. So do you feel like pushing those feelings down at such a young age was a catalyst or a part of you, um, you know, burning yourself out as, as an adult? You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I, I didn't, I actually, even when I burned out, I didn't recognize what it was. I was like achieving so hard and working so hard. I was a rising star. And from all, it almost felt like from one day to the next, um, what, you know, so, so there were, there were changes, like changes are always happening, right? When you're a doctor, it's like, there's, you lose a staff member on the ward or you gain a staff member, like, you know, there's these, and they can seem inconsequential. And what happened was that from one day to the next, what other people around me seemed to be able to cope with, I just couldn't cope with anymore. So there was a change on the, on the ward where I was working on. And while other people just like seemed to be able to adapt and roll with it, I just was like, nope. I can't, like I cannot deal with this. Uh, it's too overwhelming, too stressful. I can't see my way through it. So um, I left, <laughs> and um, and I felt like a failure for leaving. But I just I just couldn't do it anymore. And and I didn't recognize at the time that that was my like burnout, you know, experience and things, you know, the way that it was affecting my body in ways I didn't recognize at the time was that I couldn't get pregnant. I've been trying to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't. And interestingly, like when I left that position and when I, I left a lot of things in my life at that time, I just started like letting go of a bunch of stuff. Um, I was able to get pregnant within a few months after that is like my body relaxed. Right. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, and I didn't recognize the signs like, you know, signs that in retrospect now I recognize in myself is like uh, worsening constipation, um, my hands getting cold like my feet getting cold, right? Because your your nervous system is like kind of shutting down blood flow to the peripheries and kind of getting it into the heart and the muscles in a fight or flight response. Um, the, the you know, the gut distress, you know, that kind of stuff. Like I just, I had, and, and the tightness in my chest and in my neck, like 
I would come home from work, you know, just around my burnout time and everything would be just so tight, you know, and then I would do things to kind of loosen it up and work on it and that kind of stuff. And it it didn't occur to me that it was like a stress response and, and, and I was reaching burnout. Yeah. Okay. So when you were in high school, uh, were you wanting to become a medical doctor or get into like the... The, the, the medical field or what were you thinking about doing, quote unquote, when you grew up or uh, when you got out of high school? Uh, start there for us, please. And then once you graduated from high school, how did life kind of unfold for you uh, at that point? Yeah, I was not one of the people who was like, I want to be a doctor and that's what I want to do. Like since I was a young girl, like it didn't occur to me that that's something that I wanted to do at all. Actually, I was very, very good at math. Like I kicked butt on calculus and algebra and, you know, I didn't love doing it, but I was really good at it. So everyone thought I was going to go into engineering, just like my dad. And um, for a little while there, so did I. But what I found was that I just really loved biology. I loved learning about the human body. I found it really fascinating. And when I saw the description of the program at Queen's University of Life Sciences, mm. um, it didn't occur to me that it was a pre-med course. I love that they didn't describe it that way. They simply said, this is a, this is a program where you're going to get to know the human body and health and disease. And I was like, wow, that's, that's, I want to do that. Um, so I went into that. And again, I remember the very first day of one of the classes, they do the, you know, when they say that they do this, they actually do do this where they're like, look to your left look to your right, one of you will be going to medical school, the other two will not. And I remember thinking, oh, that's okay. I don't care. I don't really want to go to medical school. I just want to like do really well, you know, just like I had always done. I just wanted to really excel and get like the highest grade that I could possibly get and learn about the human body. I was, I found it really fascinating. Um, So yeah, I was just kind of doing the best I could in every single thing that I ever did. Like, and I wasn't proud to get help. Like I got tutoring for organic chemistry. You know, I wasn't the kind of person who's like, well, I'm too smart. I don't need help. I was like, oh, no, this is tough. I'm going to need a tutor. And um, I think it was just always staying in the moment and not worrying about the future that allowed me to actually have the stamina to do the work. Because if I had been doing the work thinking I want to get into medical school, I think that pressure just would have been so intense. I wouldn't have been able to handle it. So fortunately, I never thought of it. And um, again, it was my dad's like, always keep your doors open when the MCAT, uh, which is the program, the exam you have to write in order to get a score to then apply to medical school. And, you know, usually a higher score guarantees a better entry. When that came around, I was like, well, I might as well just write it. (laughs) So, you know, I took the course, I studied, I dedicated a, um, a summer, two months to studying for it and, you know, wrote it, curious, got good grades. And I was like, okay, well, why don't I then apply to medical school around the last year of university. Um, I was like, okay, well, if I am going to keep my doors open and I might apply to medical school, I should probably start fleshing out my resume. So I applied to a research position um, in at the University of Toronto in the summer. So I got a job as a research assistant that got me my first publication. And I did um, volunteer work with, you know, um, the children's hospital was very involved in that. So it was uh, you know, because I was trying to keep my doors open, I did engage in those activities, but I had a backup plan, which was to do a master's at the University of of uh, McMaster's. I was like, oh, you know, if that doesn't work out, I'll do this master's. And it didn't really like, you know, other than the self-competition of like, I want to get into medical school because like, that's my competitive nature with myself. Um, 
yeah, I wasn't like, I, I wasn't the kind of person who thought I really want to do this, you know? So and the, in the end, it worked out, which is kind of cool. So what, what's your under, what did you get your undergraduate degree in then? Yeah, so undergraduate degree was a life sciences, a bachelor in life sciences. Okay. So, okay, so, so you went to, okay, so you went to um, get your undergraduate. And so it sounds like you, you did take classes to maybe set yourself up to uh, get into medical school, but you didn't necessarily say that to yourself that you wanted to be a doctor, because like you said, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, that might, might've been too much pressure, but somewhere maybe in the subconscious, you were uh, setting yourself up uh, for an open door to get into medical school. If that's kind of how life unfolded, is that, am I hearing you correctly there? Yeah, it's more that um, I haven't, I'm not very good at staying in the present with my mind, but I am pretty good in staying my present with planning my future to a certain extent. So I just wasn't into planning my future out that much. I just, you know, I was just focused on the now and getting the good grades in the class I was involved in. Um, and yeah, I didn't do certain classes for medical school. Life sciences just kind of defines that you'll have the criteria. It was more the the extracurricular and the extracurricular is important to applying for master's degrees as well or, or PhD degrees and that kind of stuff. So the volunteer work and the research um, that was, you know, prudent of me to um, flesh out my resume because it would give me more options in the future. So it wasn't specifically for medical school. It was for, you know, helping me out with whatever next step I ended up choosing to take, okay. um, which which happened to be medical school in the end. Okay. Uh, did you do any partying or any uh, exploring or anything like that? Or were you all, all business and all school? Oh, I was really into partying, actually. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I think that's one of the reasons my health crashed in my late 30s was my liver was just so... <laughs> like destroyed. I mean, oh my God, in retrospect, um, I think because I worked hard, I played hard. Mm. Um, and I had this awesome group of friends in university. Like we, we just love to party. We, we music and dancing and late nights out. And so I would work my butt off during the week, like so hard. I would go out Thursday night. It was like this amazing night to go out in, in Queens. It was Thursday night randomly. But I would always get up on Friday for my class. Like I just, you know, and then I would work Friday afternoon at the bank because I had a part-time job there Friday afternoon and morning and Saturday morning just to make some money and use my brain with math. I just like, you know, it was good um, as, a, as a teller, like a customer service representative. And then, and then uh, Friday night and Saturday night, we'd just party hard too, you know, and um, it was fantastic. Like I wouldn't change anything except maybe the amount of alcohol that I drink. I would like, I'd, I'd go back and be like, you know, your liver is not doing well with yeah. this. So, um, no, yeah. And I, I love to dance. Like I will hit my bed, my nighttime, uh, routine, like in bed by 10 30, 11 o'clock at the latest, unless you take me to a dance party. I will dance until 5 a.m. Uh, without drugs and alcohol. Like, you know, I do not need those stimulants as long as there's good music. So yeah, no, definitely a good a balance of work hard, play hard. Okay. That I, you kind of caught me off guard there. I figured you'd be like, nope, I was all business, all studies and uh and no partying. So uh that's I, I like that. Now, um, okay, so I, I would just want to touch on before we kind of dive a little bit deeper into the the academics and kind of get into um, where you're at current day. 
I, I want to talk a little bit, uh, Dr. Patricia, about um, like identity, because I think that's something that's very important for all of us as human beings. A lot of times we gain identity through our parents and, you know, through our childhood and our upbringing and those experiences. But a lot of us try to break away or, uh, you know, uh, decide to break away from maybe that identity that we were holding on to as uh, kids or youth. Um, so did you ever, you know, have to maybe walk away from an identity that you held on to as a younger person when you once you got into your 20s or into adulthood? Or do you feel like you've always been pretty strong in terms of your self-identity? Yeah, that's a great question. There's two time points that I can uh, refer to to answer this question. The first is that because I moved, you know, either schools or countries every two years, um, I got pretty good at determining like what I who I needed to be and how I needed to act to fit in. And I remember when I when we when I finally had gone to you know school to school for every two years and changing, it was like I I had to go to a new school in high school, the last two years of school in a new like a new province and everything in Canada, we moved from Edmonton to Ontario, I consciously made a decision that I wouldn't do things to fit in it just to fit in anymore. I was like, I'm going to do things because I want to, I'm going to be the person I want to be. And I'm okay with not having friends, if that's what that means. And it was just this moment where it was so freeing, but at the same time, it was a little bit harmful, because I, I start, I kind of devalued friendship at that time a little bit, you know, because I was like, I had been hurt, you know, so many times, um, either losing friends or, or bullies at school and that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, there was that moment. And so, um, part of my identity at that time was like, I can, I'm a lone wolf. Like I do not need anybody or anything to be happy. I just need myself and, and I'm, I'm insufficient unto myself, which can be good and bad. Right. The other time I, and then the time where I had to really let go of a major identity was um, when I was a staff member at the University of British Columbia, rising star, internationally recognized researcher, like my whole, if I had stuck with that trajectory, I mean, everything was just like laid out in front of me. And I left all of that. I, I, I retired from my position, right? I don't do research in that field anymore. Uh, even I, I was even getting, you know, contacted from like international research organizations to work with them. And I, I would turn it down. I completely let go of my work identity. Um, and it was really like my ego, right? <laughs> like I went from being Dr. Mills, you know, like that everyone kind of knew in my division at the University of British Columbia to now I'm Dr. Patricia and um, I'm building my a new identity work-wise and career-wise for myself that is more aligned with who I am now and what I've learned over the past few years. And while I don't have the recognition in the way that I did in the, in the academic field that I did then, that I do now, I am just so much more content mm. and happy and excited to sit down and do the work that I need to do to make the impact that I want to have. So yeah, there's been some major identity shifts in my life. Mm. That, that the latter, the, the latter identity shift that you were just talking about, uh, Dr. Patricia, like letting go of that, you know, that identity, that status, right? Like you said, you were kind of like the rising star and um, all these publications and, and, and research and, and stuff like that. Can you w walk us through a little bit of like 
what was where, where was your mind going at that time and 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 how hard was that i i can't even imagine like you know being so to speak on that pedestal and saying i'm setting this aside i'm walking away from this i'm going in a whole new direction that's not very many people in adulthood in your position have the courage to do that most people just say well i want to do this but this is comfortable this is easy i'm established i'm somebody and i'm going to continue to go in this direction that's that's what most humans do right so talk about the courage talk about the the the, the thoughts that you had to work through and go through to walk away from that how hard was that for you in the moment it happened in stages. So while some parts of it were very drastic, like the resigning of from all of those positions and, you know, like I had a position as a member like of um, research programs and, you know, anyways, that that all happened at once. However, it, it had like, so it all happened in June uh, 2022 that I let everything go officially. Um, however, working back, I think it was like two years before that, that I started to um, let go of things. So I let go of the spinal cord injury ward work, which was a big part of my identity because being a spinal cord injury doctor is very, very high level. Like it, it is one of the most complicated medicine that you can practice as a physical medicine rehab specialist. Like spinal cord injuries are very complex and what they develop is very complicated. And I loved the complexity and the challenge. Um, and so letting go of that was tough, but again, it was a burnout. So part of it was my destiny. Like, you know, even the negative, the seemingly negative ended up contributing in a positive way to where I am now. So that's one thing I've really learned is that even though something may seem very negative in the moment, overall, uh, things are working for you, not against you. That is another mantra that I have, you know, even if it's negative, this is working for my favor, not against me. Right. Mm. Um, so it was the burnout helped me. Like it wasn't courage, it was burnout that allowed me to let go of that. And then um, I really uh, narrowed down my practice where it was just like a couple of days a week I was going into the hospital because even just going into the hospital every day, I just couldn't handle it anymore. Um, and I was doing some medical legal work instead on the side, which is working with people like working for the uh, legal system to assist lawyers and judges in making decisions about people's cases if they're in, involved in trauma. And as a rehab doctor, that's an extremely valuable asset to have, right, on the legal team um, or the legal system. So I, would, I helped with that. And that was money-making, but not soul-satisfying, right? But at the time, I, I was just like, I was so burnt out. I just like, this is what I can handle. And then as I went on, I started doing less and less legal cases, even though the money was good. I was just like, you know, I'm just not, this isn't making me happy. And I started paying attention to what, what made me happy. And I loved going into a coffee shop, sitting on my computer and just like perusing the research and making sense of it. And like starting to decode, like what, what was the themes like of what is good nutrition? What is this? What is that? And, and writing about it, you know, and sharing it. Um, and then it was like, also, I was listening to this podcast on Dr. Mark Hyman with, uh, Dr. Michelle Paris, who started, uh, the wild collective, which is a women's health promotion program where it was group group women's health promotion. And I remember as I was listening to that podcast, something just clicked and I was like, oh my God, this feels so right. Group, group 
program, a group program, so that I'm teaching a bunch of women all at once rather than one-on-one, which felt like an extremely like inefficient use of my time, right? And also one-on-one is very stressful because that there's this extreme uh, relationship that plays out between the patient and the doctor that the the patient's personality and the doctor's personality has a lot of impact on that. When you're in a group program, the relationship becomes less of the focus and the information and the outcomes and like the, you know, the process becomes the focus. And what ends up being the more important relationship is the relationship between the people in the group and how they support each other. And if you have a good leader of the group, then you play on the strengths and the weaknesses get kind of washed out, you know? So it, it creates this like really powerful um, energizing experience for both the leader and the group, right? If, if you know how to lead a group well. And I found I was very good at that. Whenever I would get into a group situation, um, that was a strength of mine. And I loved it. I would just come away from that just more energetic than when I went into it. So uh, I contacted Dr. Michelle Paris, and I signed on to be a facilitator of the Wild Collective Group Health Program. And I started offering it while I was still um, in my position with, a B, with the University of BC, still doing clinics at the hospital, outpatient clinics in neuromusculoskeletal. So still seeing extremely complex um, conditions like, like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, um, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, multi-trauma, brain injury, all the amputations, all those things, right? So I was still doing that. I still had my foot in that world, but I was starting to put my foot in this other world where I was empowering myself and empowering others to learn more about their health and what they can do about it so they could get the results that they actually wanted. And so it was that moment. uh, And I just, I'm the kind of person where if I get my teeth into something, I really sink in and I just go all out. So like I hired a marketing team. I, you know, I got an online presence. I had never done social media. I did not have an Instagram account. I did not have a Facebook account. I started that all up. It was so scary for me. Talk about getting out of your comfort zone. But I had this feeling that I was, I had so much information in my head about health that I was sharing with my family and and friends that wanted to listen. Not everyone wants to listen. And I, you know, I became very aware of that dynamic too. And I was like, it would be wrong of me to not share this on some level. So I started to look for opportunities where I could share it that would not feel like it would be a burnout situation for me. And and the group program seemed to be like the perfect solution. Mm. Um, So once I got that going and that had a bit of momentum and I had certain like things I was doing on social media, a wild week, a weekly live show that airs on YouTube and podcasts, all that kind of stuff. Then I was able to lift my foot out of the Western you know, traditional Western medicine practice and go on a clinical sabbatical, like, you know, resign from all those things, go on a clinical sabbatical, focus on my online health promotion programs and my online presence to make impact and share knowledge while completing functional medicine and now pivoting to start a new clinical practice. So it, you know, in some ways it was sudden uh, in that, you know, June, everything kind of went down. However, it, to, it was a, a an evolution. Yeah. Did you experience any pushback or uh, negativity from colleagues or anybody uh, that you were previously working with uh, in some of your pre- previous positions, or was everybody kind of supportive? 
or you don't really um, care? <laughs> oh, it's a bit of a complicated question. Um, and I never know how much to share about this. But another thing that happened was that I chose not to vaccinate with the COVID vaccine. And uh, one of the reasons, there's so many reasons why, uh, and I'm not saying that it's the wrong choice for people. In fact, it's probably the right choice for people, for some people, and maybe not the best choice for others. One thing that we are taught in medicine is, um, you know, case by case decision making in terms of even what's considered the standard of care sometimes is not appropriate for every person. And I remember the time when I made a decision to really look into this um, was when I had a patient in my outpatient clinic that had a, a diagnosis of transverse myelitis and what and hers was triggered by a vaccination, like a previous other vaccination. And it's a known potential side effect of uh, any kind of vaccination. And usually it's understood that if you've had that reaction to a vaccination, you're more likely to have it for to another one. So generally speaking, people who have had transverse myelitis, which is an inflammation of the spinal cord, which can cause paralysis and loss of sensation in varying degrees anywhere below that level of inflammation. She had it in the neck so that her arms and legs, her bowels and her bladders became paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And she was so fortunate to have an, a 90% recovery, like just still had a few issues with her you know, hip muscles and that kind of stuff by the time I saw her. But it's pretty serious. She was hospitalized. It was documented, and basically, the the you know the decision was she would never get a vaccination again. Uh, I believe it was the influenza vaccine, if I'm not mistaken, at that point. And so I was under, like, I was, you know, she came to me, and she we were having our usual interaction. And she said, you know, um, I really don't want to get the COVID vaccine because of my previous history. And I said, well, that makes total sense, right? Because first of all, they've never. Um, They've never tested the the vaccine in people who have had previous reactions like yours. So we cannot tell you that it's safe because we don't know we don't know. And on the risk benefit ratio, it's extremely dangerous because one of the potential side effects of of the COVID vaccination is neurological issues like a transverse myelitis. Actually, a colleague of mine had it as a result of the COVID vaccine. It was even, um, she even got uh, dispensation to not have the second one because she was hospitalized and that kind of thing. So it was a known possible consequence. So it made no, of course, I was like, yeah, of course. And then I was told that I, I should be telling her that she should get it. And at that moment, I, I started to realize that things weren't 100% adding up, right? And I was like, okay, I can see how it would be good for some people, not for others. And this is a clear case of when this would not be good. And yet I'm being told to tell this person and to not provide, uh, you know, um, an exception to it. So um, that and many other things led to me making my personal decision. And, and you know, I complied with all the mandates. Uh, I was one of the first, when, when we were allowed to go back to work in person and there were not yet vaccines, I went back and put myself at risk using the um, personal protective equipment. Um, you know, I, I just felt like it was my duty to do what I could. It didn't, like, I recognized it was a potential risk for myself, but I, you know, I was thought this is, this is just the job of a doctor. You have to put yourself at risk to help others. And I was able to do that until I could no longer do that because I, I chose to not vaccinate. So I complied with the mandate. I withdrew myself from, um, clinical practice for the period of time that I was not able to, because of the mandates around clinicians not being able to work, even 
online through Zoom, which was an accepted way to service people by that time. So even though there was no reason for me to put them at risk physically, you know, for whatever reason for not being vaccinated, I was still not allowed to care for them. So I had to transition my, the care of my patients to my colleagues. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate. I had very good um, interactions with the um, the community, uh, what's it called, the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. Uh, I had a meeting with 25 representatives all the way from the top to community doctors. I had 10 minutes to explain my position. And at the end of it, they were either going to like, um, you know, take away my privileges as a doctor, which is bad. Like usually you only lose your privileges if you can commit like sexual misconduct. <laughs> um, so it's going to be a big deal. Right. And and it's a very real possibility. I know that some doctors did lose their privileges in different health authorities for making that choice. But the the committee was so um, anyways, we had a very good interaction. I did not lose my privileges. OK, so I was able to voluntarily resign. Mm. Right. Uh, from my position. Um, and fortunately, I had already made a decision to leave Vancouver before all of this happened. So it was great because I didn't feel like I was running away from anything. I didn't feel like um, I didn't have any ill will or, you know, um, negative experiences with um, the health authorities. Everything was just really well conducted on that level. And there were some of my colleagues who simply could not understand the decision I was making. And these were dear friends. Um, you know, we had a very tight community at the time within the division. And uh, there are still people to this day that I haven't communicated with at all since I left. And so, whereas there are others that reach out, we, you know, we, we connect, um, we support each other in whatever it is that we're doing with whatever decisions that we make with respect and kindness. And, um, and I understand all of it. I have compassion for every perspective of that situation, you know, because the people who don't understand my position, they're coming from a place of, of their own love, you know, of what they perceive to be right, the right thing to do, right? It's their perception. And I can't say I'm right and they're wrong or they're right and I'm wrong because no one knows all of the information. Like no one will ever have all of the information on this story. Um, what I can say is that I did the best I could with the information that I had, trying to minimize any damage to others um, and any harm to others and um, trying to act respectfully. And I'm, I feel peace mm. with that part of my life, which is thankfully behind me. <laughs> yeah. Well, th thankfully, the, all, all of that craziness is behind all of us because uh, those were some interesting times. But uh, I, I, I really appreciate that perspective, uh, Dr. Patricia. Now, Let's kind of step into uh, you getting into the the holistic side of uh, medicine and uh, getting into opening up your practice. It sounds like here in a, in a couple short months, and kind of like where you're at present day, doing the social media stuff and the the groups and all that. Now, you said that your 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 dad's diagnosis was the the main catalyst for you to kind of start looking at uh, medicine. Uh, in a in a different light, can you kind of pick us up from from that point that you already shared at the beginning of our conversation, and kind of lead us into you stepping into the functional medicine, the gut health, the hormones, your four pillars of health, like just kind of like unpack all of that from the 
the time that you made that transition with the diagnosis of, of your dad? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to do justice to the process because it was interesting. So basically when my dad got ALS and I was trying to figure out first, it was like, what more can I offer that would actually reverse the condition and maybe even provide a cure? Like I was aiming for the stars. So I was digging into the research. And I remember the first one I found was these like super therapeutic doses of vitamin B12. I didn't even know really what vitamin B12 was in medical school. We get about four hours of nutritional training within two days of like holistic, you know, like we were learning what, what different kind of chiropractors there are. And anyways, it was just, it's very minimal. Okay. Very, very minimal. And the nutrition is like a cal, you know, fat has X amount of calories, carbs have X amount of calories, you know, calories, calories in calories out, that kind of stuff. Okay. And Oh, vitamin D does that vitamin C does that, but not like how to dose it or different conditions and that kind of stuff. Okay. Very basic. So it's continued medical education on your own steam to learn anything more. So, um, and we started the vitamin B12 injections for him. I went through a process to like, you know, get approval and whatever, and they temporarily helped like actually neurologically helped him temporarily. And then the improvement waned and stopped. So there was only a temporary improvement. It was enough, however, for me to become interested in, vitamins and supplements. I was like, oh, isn't that fascinating? Like it actually did help for a bit. So I, I attended some nutritional weekend, um, you know, conferences and courses and workshops. I started to like learn more about that. Um, and as I dove more and more into that research, I was just like fascinated by, you know, the research on vitamin D, the fact that cholesterol from eggs is not harmful for your health, the way that we're taught. And you know, blah, 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 just getting down all of these like rabbit holes. And every time I'd, I'd find a topic, I would just go deep into the rabbit hole until I felt like there was nothing else to learn, pop back out again, look around. And then um, I came across uh, Dr. Mark Hyman, right, who's a functional medicine, you know, just amazing achiever, like thankful for how he has brought that practice to light. And functional medicine was started by primarily and joined primarily by doctors and clinicians who have had training the, the the conventional way, but then something happens in their life, either to themselves or to a loved one, and they're just not satisfied with the conventional approach. They also ask the why and what more, and they all seem to kind of like through their own avenues, find their way to this core, you know, um, way of looking at things in terms of root cause disease, and then find out functional medicine and, and that kind of thing, right? So that's like interesting how that evolved. Um, and so as I decided to do the certification and as I, uh, between a combination of like reading books and listening to podcasts and doing the functional medicine certification, like, and the thing about podcasts is you have to be really careful who you're, you know, who you're getting your information from, which is why those ones I listed are great because they would interview like PhD doctors, you know, and then I would look up their research. You know, but, oh, that doctor talked about this. Let me go look up his research study. So I would always verify it by looking up the research. Um, and so that's how I got into into functional medicine. And, and um, I'll be starting up my practice. Um, so I moved from Vancouver to Smithers, which is a small town up north, north, uh, northern BC, British Columbia. And I'll be uh, providing a group medical program called Food is Medicine. And what's really great about it is that in Canada, you have two different healthcare models. Well, you have the healthcare model of public um, insurance. So 
um, and most most people here um, receive their health care um, through that insurance. So for me, it's like medical services plan in Ontario. It's the OHIP, um, but you basically show up to your doctor. You don't pay a thing. It's all paid through your taxes, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, in Canada, there's an expectation that for on the part of most people that that's the way to receive care. Anything that you have to pay out of pocket. Um, you know, people feel like they can't afford, um, and it's only people with more uh, income um, that can afford things like functional medicine doctors, naturopathic doctors, that um, more of that root cause medicine approach. However, because I'm a specialist, um, I'm able to provide functional medicine service through the public health insurance cool. with some restrictions, because, for example, the Canadian government will not pay for um many of the tests that functional medicine doctors like to run. They'll pay for more tests of diagnosis of disease rather than health promotion and prevention, right? Those things you tend to have to pay out of pocket. Mm. And they also don't pay for the more up and coming stuff like gut health, you know, like um, stool cultures and gut microbiome analysis and um, tests for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. These are all, you know, things that are big in functional medicine, but um, not yet mainstream enough, definitely proven in research is not for lack of research, but it's just not in the vocabulary and the medical vocabulary um, of the of the Health Canada to pay for those things. So finding the middle path where I provide a functional medicine service in a group setting um, with the tools that are available to us um, through the Health Canada system, which will require a bit of a unique approach, but I mean, I've done amazing things for in in my health promotion programs where we don't do any blood work, you know, at all. And it's really just about teaching people and providing the tools and support for them to take action on that knowledge, because information is useless without action, to support those four pillars of whole body health, which um, in my, like, this is what I've come up with, because it's always good to have a system like um, a structure within to work so you can kind of organize the information. So as I was seeing all the research out there, I started to organize information into these four categories and they are gut health, hormone balance, stress response, and toxins tolerance. Mm -hmm. So there's many, you know, nuances to this, but you need to address all four and have all four working for you in your body to optimize your health, you could have excellent gut health, but have an exposure to a toxin like a heavy metal, right? Or um, an endocrine disrupting chemical like pesticides that can mess with your hormone balance and you're not going to experience your best health. Or you could have the best diet and not have a good stress response. And again, you're not going to experience your best health. Hmm. So now your practice, is this going to be all online virtual or are you going to have like a brick and mortar? So. I have two ways that I practice medicine. One is online health promotion programs, in which case any person from any part of the world can join my my group health promotion programs. That's all online. Um, And that's uh, you pay for it out of pocket because it's not a medical service. Right. It's a health promotion program, which actually the government of Canada does not cover. Um, in its health insurance um, so that for that reason, I can offer it because it's not a medical service. My medical service practice, which is for patients, will be uh, also virtual group so that because it's, you know, eight weeks in a row for an hour and a half each week. And I will be limiting my services to local residents 
mm-hmm. um, through like Smithers and the local towns around here, just because uh, I won't be able to, because of my other business ventures on social media and, and with my health promotion programs, I can't dedicate more than a certain amount of time a week. So that's one way to limit it is to service my local community. And also I am a uh, member of the Mood Disorders Association, the British Columbia, and I'll be servicing their clients. So people with um, you know depression, anxiety, chronic pain. There's a lot of research showing that food as medicine makes tremendous impact on those outcomes. Um, so part of my practice will be for them to service their clients, and the other part will be to service my local community. Hmm. Okay, now uh, let's let's touch on the to- the topic of uh, the broad topic of nutrition, if you don't mind, for just a couple minutes. Um, I know uh, Mark Hyman. I'm, I've listened to a lot of his podcasts and a lot of his interviews. Uh, just he's at the Cleveland Clinic here uh, in the states, I believe. Um, but uh, I know he's plant based. Uh, I I went on your Instagram and clicked on the link in your bio, and I saw I think something in terms of uh, like plant based nutrition. So will you kind of talk about uh, your nutrition philosophy and kind of how you got to got to that point? Because there's a lot of philosophies, there's a lot of thoughts uh, and opinions in terms of nutrition, but Talk a little bit about your perspective, your philosophy, and how you got there in terms of uh, nutrition, if you don't mind. Yeah. So actually, Dr. Mark Hyman is not plant-based. He's plant-rich. He eats meat. Um, He's uh, pro-regenerative farming practices so that the meat that you eat is quality meat grown on um, you know, regenerative farms that basically support the environment rather than strip it and also promotes quality um, growth practices for animals such as free-ranging. Um, eating the, their natural foods, not being forced into feedlots and eating grain to fatten them up, which really messes with, with their nutrient profile and the quality of the meat. And I subscribe to that as well. I uh, I am not plant-based. I am omnivore. I uh, focus on uh, eating a plant-rich diet. So my plate looks like about 80% um, grains, like vegetables with some grains. And I always choose some kind of a carb for my plate, like a little bit of rice, or a sweet potato, or a quality pasta um, that's about the size of my palm in terms of a serving. Then about uh, the rest of that plate is vegetables with, again, a palm size, ser- size serving of um, some kind of a quality protein like meat, could be lamb, fish, chicken, um, goat. You know, I try for variety and everything. And uh, the reason, and I, I don't think that that's actually the thing for everybody, you know, I do believe in personalized nutrition. So some people do better depending on their gut health and their genetics with um, avoiding certain vegetables and grains. Uh, Other people do better with avoiding certain meats. Some people actually have a allergic reaction to fish, you know, and fish is a very healthy food. So just because a food is generally categorized as healthy, doesn't mean it's good for that person. I, for example, have a dairy intolerance. Um, and there are certain foods like mustard seeds that I have a, a, a not a great reaction to. It causes the dermatitis on my eyes. So, and yet mustard seeds are very healthful foods. So I'm a big believer of discovering the foods that support your health uh, using things like a tool like the elimination diet, where, you know, you go through a, a temporary process of removing certain foods and then adding them back in and really observing how does your body respond to them. For example, I can do gluten as long as it's organic flour, sourdough fermented so that the gluten is partially broken down through the fermentation process and there's no pesticides in the grains. 
under those conditions, I can eat gluten. I don't do so well if I eat a store-bought roll that is full of um, added salt, right? That's one of the biggest sources of processed salt in our diet is bread that is store-bought. When I say store-bought, I mean the kind that lasts forever on the shelf. so, you know, it's, it's, it's the devil is in the details. Generally speaking, for every human being, they do better if they are, uh, eliminate ultra processed foods from their diet or significantly reduce it. And that's the thing. Sometimes people will go, uh, they'll go from eating a certain kind of diet to eating a vegan diet, or they'll go from eating a certain kind of diet to eating a carnivore diet, right? The two extremes of the spectrum. What and they'll feel better, but one thing you have to remember is often what they'll do in that process is eliminate ultra processed foods, right? Or or poor quality poor quality foods, um, junk food, excess sugar, that kind of stuff. And so it's hard to say: are they feeling better because it's vegan or carnivore, or are they feeling better because they generally cleaned up their diet, right? So that's where I try to lead people down is to to teach them how to recognize which ultra processed foods are are most likely harmful. Like um, there's this one chemical that's added to 90% or more of of packaged and processed foods, which is uh, the family of emulsifiers. Mm. And they actually studied this and emulsifiers cause inflammation and harm to the gut microbiome in humans. Not even Mm. like they studied this in animals, but they also studied this in humans. So you could be eating your like whole wheat sprouted bread and it has this emulsifier in it and it's harming your gut, right? So you could initially feel great on it because you're, you psychologically think you're making an amazing choice for your health, but days, weeks, months, years down the road, the gut health erosion is causing you to be sick. And the only way you know you're not going to be exposed to these chemicals is by focusing on a whole foods diet and quality grains, right? Quality meat, if you're going to eat meat. Um, beans, for example, and grains like oats are one of the most highly sprayed crops with pesticides mm. and herbicides. And pesticides and herbicides harm the gut. That has been proven. And uh, certain herbicides disrupt, chemo- uh, disrupt hormone balance. In men and women. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, it's the devil's in the details there too. I eat, I, you know, I purchase organic beans and I purchase organic grains, right? Organic oats. And yes, it's more money. Um, and what I tell people is, you know, if you're going to choose between purchasing quality foods and supplements, because some people will start buying supplements before they even have their diet nailed down. And for me, it's like, get the, get the, if I was going to focus on anything, it's eliminating the stuff that can cause harm because you can't out supplement a shitty diet. Right. Um, so it's, it's, there's no label for the way that I like to eat because an explanation is required around most choices. But what I can generally say is that the ultra processed foods and sugar, Mm. it is amazing to me how I will witness people who are trying to do the best for their health and making healthy choices in most places of their life. And then they'll buy like a a sugary cereal for their kids breakfast, not thinking about it, you know, Um, or they'll buy like um, a food that's labeled like a health, you know, like natural organic or whatever. And the first, second or third ingredient is sugar, right? So there's this disconnect in a way. um, And our kids are exposed to so much sugar 
in like it it just continues to surprise me <laughs> how much i have to gently navigate situations day to day where i i'm having to protect my kids from the sugar overload that society seems to have normalized and it's insidious you know and and people don't even realize so it's not purposeful at all that it's a lack of awareness and i haven't figured out a way yet to kindly and gently change this around without hurting people's feelings because it's tied into um, the language of love so you know expressing um, love or a celebration celebrating things is just so tied into sugar that i think to separate the two i i don't actually know how that will happen over time but for us to experience significant changes in in, the, in societal health we're going to have to find a way to express love other through treats. Yeah. And it's tough, especially with kids. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Uh, okay, we're going to start wrapping up here, Dr. Uh, Patricia. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, now, uh, can, can, I want you to just, if you don't mind, with your four pillars of health, uh, the number one was, uh, was uh, uh, gut health. Um, can you kind of share with us why you have that as number one? Um, and then for maybe people that are listening, because uh, I'm, I'm very focused on like holistic health myself. So I have some understanding of, of where you're coming from. Right. But maybe some people don't uh, like there is nothing about nutrition, nothing about uh, exercise or movement. So can you kind of like explain to us and help us better understand why you have uh, what you have in the order for your four pillars of health? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I had no idea about gut health until I started getting into this research. Like, this is not taught in medical school or specialty training, even if you're a gastroenterologist, unless that might be changing now. But when I went through it and I did my time on gastroenterology, which is the, the study, the medicine of uh, the gastrointestinal system, the gut, right? This is not taught. So this is relatively new research, but it's actually been out for decades now, right? So it's not that new, really. It just hasn't really made it through to conventional medicine. But it's the fact that um, everything begins with, um, so your, your body is exposed to things in the environment that it has to process, either absorb or eliminate, right? And so it's exposed to, and how it's exposed to it is through your breath, through what you eat and what you drink and what you put on your skin. We're constantly eating, like many of us eat even from the moment we wake up to the time we go to bed, um, some of us more or less than that, right? Um, and so what we're eating is something like if we just focus on that, right? So what you're eating goes into you and it, there are parts of your body that are responsible for processing that. And what's interesting is that it's not just your body parts like your, your esophagus, you know, where the food goes down the stomach, where it's broken down by acid then the, the small intestine and large intestine where the food goes through it and the body has to like absorb those nutrients. Um, and then the, the large intestine where it absorb water, absorbs water. And then the body um, eliminates things from inside of itself into the gut so that you eliminate it as poop, right? So there's that whole process. But if you dig even deeper into that, what is interesting is that we have a garden within our gut um, that is... Um, it's almost like you can think of it like as a soil that's lines the the lining of our gut where it's made out of mucus and a bunch of bacteria, viruses and fungi 
um, and protozoa, they're live, they're the they're microorganisms, microbiome, they live in that mucus that lines our gut. And actually, they are meant to be there. We evolved with them. And so we've been, uh, you know, working with them and they've been working with us since the beginning of time. And they have jobs in our body. So as the as the food goes down in the gut, um, the first, the very first interaction between our ecosystem, like our body and them, and the food is through them. So they um they help us break down the food. So, for example, um, fiber, you know, everybody says fiber is really good for you. We cannot break fiber down. It's our gut microbiome that breaks our fiber down for us. And then we are able to absorb the, the breakdown nutrients of fiber. And then those nutrients have to get through the lining of our gut. And the lining of our gut is like a coffee filter. It's meant to keep the bad stuff out and let the good stuff in, right? And it's thin and delicate like a coffee filter. And when you have damage to either the gut microbiome and or the gut lining, a couple of things happen. One is you can't get the good stuff in and you can't keep the bad stuff out. So you start to let in like undigested food particles into your body or even um, undesirable bacteria and or like those bacteria and fungi and all those things, they belong inside of your gut, but not inside you. They, they're not supposed to get past that lining. But when that lining gets damaged, they all start to be able to get inside of us. And actually there's a lot of diseases, including ALS mm -hmm. and Parkinson's that are linked to a problem with the health of our gut microbiome, right? And, and multiple sclerosis and all those things. And so when you, and when you get the damage to the lining of the gut and or the damage to the gut microbiome, you can't digest properly, you can't absorb properly, you can't eliminate properly. And that damage, just like if, if you cut the lining of the gut over and over again, just like if you were to cut your skin over and over again, it gets inflamed. It gets inflammation, okay? But this inflammation is inside of you. And unlike uh, cuts to the skin, you don't feel it in the same way, right? You don't have the same sensory organs on the skin that you do in the gut, but your body still gets inflammation. And if you remember, inflammation is redness, swelling, right? Like lots of... Um, um, the body's immune system, which is responsible for fighting off organisms, invading organisms, um, they start to have to mobilize and they mobilize into the gut and they start to build up attacks against inflammation and invasion of microbiome and that kind of stuff. And so then all your body starts to become dysfunctional in the sense that what's supposed to be taking care of you in terms of protecting you from, um, you know, cleaning up the cancer cells and getting rid of um, you know, bacteria that comes in that you're, that's not supposed to get into you, the immune system starts to get turned on and it gets turned on too much all the time versus just occasionally with, with damage, right? With like normal day-to-day -day damage from cuts and that kind of stuff that heal up, go away, and then your immune system can then recover. And your immune system is responsible for taking out the garbage in your body, right? So your body now, if you're if you're doing anything to harm your gut microbiome or your gut lining through things like chemicals and ultra processed foods and pesticides, um, so chemical environmental toxins, environmental uh, toxins from your foods and pesticides on your foods, that is that that has been proven by research to harm the health of your gut microbiome, to harm the health of your gut lining, which results in inflammation in the gut lining which results in inflammation in the body. And there are early warning signs. So early warning signs will depend on your genetics, like what is affected for you. For some people, it's eczema, dermatitis, psoriasis, acne. For other people, it's brain fog. For other people, it's joint pain. 
You know, for other people, it's um, not being able to sleep well at night. For other people, it's feeling tired during the day. Those are the early warning signs. Another one is weight gain, particularly around the middle, the midsection, like, you know, people walking around with those big, bigger bellies, right? Um, it might be swelling of the body, like water retention, hypertension, right? Diabetes. Uh, those are all, and then you're starting to progress into the mid warning signs like diabetes. And then you have the late warning signs like, like the cancer, like the multiple sclerosis, like the ALS, the Parkinson's. Those are all the later manifestations. But those things have been um, happening. And for most of them, one of the root causes is that breakdown in gut health. And and so then that's kind of why you have gut health as number one in terms of your four pillars of health, because it really, uh, if your gut's off, every fiber of your being will be off, so to speak. Is is that fair to say? Actually, there is no order to the pillars. Mm -hmm. So you, depending on who you are and how your health is affected and what's going on in your life, you may be someone who have excellent gut health, but your stress response is so high that it's harming your health significantly. And they're all interrelated. So for example, stress response, a uh, high stress response causes a leaky gut. Mm. So, you know, that is the uh, a direct um, connection between the brain and the gut. They're physically connected through the vagus nerve. So um, that's one example. A high stress response affects your hormone balance. So a high stress response results in high cortisol hormone release, which is your stress hormone which will alter your, like decrease your levels of progesterone, alter your testosterone and estrogen, and can result in those hormonal imbalance consequences. Um, if you have an impact on your gut health, that impacts your hormone balance because you have, um, you know, it's going to impact the way that you uh, produce estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, and insulin, right? If you um, are exposed to toxins like heavy metals, for example, um, or endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment, so, and let's say you've uh, reached the maximum of your toxins tolerance, which is why I call it toxins tolerance. Not, it's not just that being exposed to toxins is bad. You we have a capacity for a certain amount of toxins exposure and detoxification. The problem is when you either overwhelm it, right? Like the liver can only do so much, you know, the lymphatic system can only do so much. And when you overwhelm it, it basically, that's when you start to tip into dysfunction. Or you have an incredible capacity, but you get a major hit. Like um, some people have occupational exposures to toxins and it's just like so much all of a sudden of one toxin that it's the problem. But in all of the cases, you've reached the limit of your toxins tolerance. And that will impact your ability to make hormones. That'll cause a stress response in your body. That will harm your gut health, right? So they're all interconnected. And uh, I see people sometimes focusing on one. Mm -hmm. and not recognizing or respecting the others and that's the that's when you you get you get people not experiencing the best health like i remember on instagram once i saw someone saying like you know i'm exercising i'm eating well um, i'm meditating but i just can't drop the weight and what came to my mind was i wonder if they're having some kind of toxin exposure to like mold uh, or some kind of lead you know or mercury or cadmium you know those sorts of things Hmm. Perfect. Okay, we're going to wrap it up uh, with this kind of uh, last question uh, or, or conversation, Dr. Uh, Patricia. Motherhood. Uh, you said you're a, a, a mother of two, five, and a seven year old. 
Uh, how has motherhood kind of changed you, uh, shifted your perspective, uh, maybe made you more passionate about this holistic health? Um, kind of just touch on that because we we got the professional side of you, obviously, through our conversation today and the upbringing. But of course, motherhood, having kids is something that is is life changing in of itself. So talk about that, if you don't mind, for a couple minutes. Uh, yeah, I mean, that becoming a mother was the biggest identity shift mm -hmm. and the biggest um, life changing moment like if I were to pinpoint the moment in my life where everything changed was becoming a mother. And it was, I have to say that initially it was really hard and really, really horrible. I had a terrible experience and I didn't expect it and I had no control over it. And one thing I had always had in my life was control. I just knew if I studied hard enough, if I worked hard enough, I would get good grades and I would succeed. And all of a sudden, motherhood came along and talk about just losing all of everything all at once, right? Like the ability to go out and exercise when I wanted to go out with my friends and, you know, be with them when I wanted to, um, my career, everything. It was like it all got shelved for motherhood. And, I, and I, of course, I thought that I would be able to balance it all and it just was not possible. And I had all of these expectations, like I would be able to breastfeed and, and you know, all these things. And for my own health issues, like I couldn't successfully breastfeed, even though I tried so hard, it was, it resulted in my, my child crying all the time without sleeping. I experienced PTSD from that, from like sleep deprivation, anxiety, depression. And it was the most important thing to happen to me in my life because it, it brought up all of the deep down um, issues that I had been kind of like repressing, you know, all of the things about myself that I had, you know, it's easy to be um, your best self when you're like with your friends or when you're working as a doctor. When you have someone in your life like a child and you're responsible for them 24 seven, you have to spend all your, like initially spend most of your time with them and, and, and also give up so much. It, it is, it's like something that causes and promotes such personal growth in a way that you would never have if you don't experience motherhood. So I, and there were times when I felt like I didn't want to be a mother anymore. Mm -hmm. And I look back on those moments and I, I just send myself so much love because um, our society is not really set up to um, support motherhood as being an easy and natural transition. And it's not society's fault. Again, it's a systemic manifestation of many different things. It's set up so that for most women, finding your way to enjoying motherhood, not for every woman, I can't speak to that, but for women like myself, who are high achievers, you know, type A, um, had, like we're really, you know, had a strong identity and friends and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and control and all that kind of thing. It's set up to force you to learn to surrender mm. and to um, learn how to coexist in a way that, you know, you otherwise would not learn to becoming a mother. I liken it to like if you're in an amusement park and, and you're like watching the roller coaster. And if you choose to have children, it's like you choose to step on the roller coaster. If you don't, you get to still walk, you get to walk around and watch people on the roller coaster, but you don't participate in it yourself. Again, it's not good or bad. 
it it is that significant though because motherhood is just full of these super low lows and super high highs and what i can say is that um i'm really proud of myself that i recognized that things were not working out well i was not being the mother that i wanted to be and i i was not having the relationship with my children that i wanted to have from the outside it looked fantastic but from the inside it it was not what i wanted and it was not great and I persevered and I, just like I went down the rabbit hole with nutrition, I went down the rabbit hole with like all these different parenting things like conscious parenting and this and that. And I just kept working at it and working at it and, and just not giving up, you know, on myself or on them. Right. And, um, the more and more I stay in the present and I'm grateful and appreciative for every moment, the more I'm enjoying motherhood. And I can honestly say now because I've been nothing but honest with you, is that I love, (laughs) I get emotional, being a mother so much, it brings me so much joy. And there are moments of intense frustration, like you just want to shake them and be like, why are you doing this? I've told you 10 times to not do this. However, that's normal. And, and everything now is like on this background of love you know, and, and just gratitude. Um, and, um, and it, it was not natural for me to be in the state with them. I had to work hard at it. And now I'm reaping the benefits of all of that hard work and, and doing the work and, and it's worth it. So anyone who says motherhood is easy. I mean, if that's true for you, amazing. Um, for me, it was not. Um, and there were moments where, you know, it wasn't, it was actually really quite hard and, and I would say it was very difficult mm-hmm. now, um, uh, on the other side of that, I can say, it's just, I wouldn't change it for the world. It was, it's just the best, one of the most important things now. Being very candid on curious and candid. I appreciate that. <laughs> super, <laughs> super, uh, super, uh, cool way to kind of end the conversation, Dr. Uh, Patricia. So before I do a quick outro and I get you out of here today, um, first of all, I want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for being candid. Thank you for sharing your story and your insights. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Um, I want to kind of give you an opportunity if you have anything that you want to leave with us in closing, any final thoughts, any final words. Um, where can people go if they want to connect with you on social media, if they want to connect with you in terms of you know care or being a part of your communities, whatever offerings you have. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of share um, all of that stuff. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, the platform is yours. I'll do a quick outro and that will finish up our conversation today. So platform is yours. Thank you so much. Um, for you, the listener, um, I just have to say that wherever you are and whatever your perspectives, um, where, you know, the place that I've come to is that um, I love you regardless, you know, and, and I love you for that fact. And I know that sounds like a really strange thing to say, but as someone who um, has been on both sides of the fence, when it comes to, for example, healthcare, you know, the conventional and the non-conventional, the holistic and the traditional, um, I really respect everybody on all of those sides of the fence. And I've been able to bring that down to um, every single level, you know, every, every conversation that happens um, I can see both sides of it because I've been on both sides. So um, if you find yourself where, you know, you're wondering um, what's going on in your life and you're wondering, like, am I going to achieve like my purpose and, and the thing that I want to do? What I can tell you is that the very best thing you can do is 
make your plans, of course, and then forget about the future and just focus on the now. And be incredibly, if you can, bring yourself to this point of being incredibly grateful for this brief, brief moment on time on this tiny speck of a planet floating around in space and just how incredible it is that you are here having this experience and you are special for that reason just just for that reason um and you don't have to do anything else to to you know prove yourself just live every day and just enjoy the heck out of every day as much as you can and there will be hard days for sure and those days you know they shall pass this too shall pass and that's something i had to keep saying to myself during the hard times um, what you can do to follow me is go to, uh, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube are my favorite platforms. So Instagram at dr.patriciamills, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A mills.com. And that's dr. Patricia Mills. Same uh, handle on YouTube. And I have a free private Facebook group for women called uh, Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills. And you can join me there. Um, I love the community there. The women there are incredibly kind and um, they're really um, engaged in their health in a very positive and uplifting way. Uh, I have weekly mini health challenges to help set you on the right path because the other message is that it won't happen right away. I started my journey at the age of 40. I'm 44 now. And um, I'm still working towards it. But what I can say is that after a couple of years of really focusing on it, things started to really fall into place. So it's not like if you're expecting results in a few days or weeks or, you know, or even months and you don't get what you want, don't be disappointed. It, it takes consistency and persistence with that. Um, and I do have a podcast as well. Um, it's called Wild Wisdom with Dr. Patricia Mills. And um, yeah, I enjoy sharing my knowledge and I love it when you show up and ask your questions and I prioritize answering all the questions in the comments. Uh, Dr. Uh, Patricia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it, okay? Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, Wild Wisdom with Dr. Patricia Mills. If you like this podcast, please take the time to like and subscribe. And please feel free to leave any comments and look below for the contact information if you want to connect with me directly. Thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful day, evening or night. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for a professional care doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for help in your journey, it is important that you seek out a qualified health practitioner. If you would like to work with Dr. Patricia for her expert health transformation guidance, please email her at info at drpatriciamills.com to book a discovery call. You can also find Dr. Patricia on Instagram at Dr. Patricia Mills and Facebook at Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills, MD. For access to all of Dr. Patricia's educational videos and more amazing perks, consider becoming a Patreon member. Links are in the description of this episode. It is important to have an expert in your corner that can help you make the changes you crave, especially when it comes to your health. Thank you.